Hadassah, and I'm so excited to welcome you to Real Woman, Real Torah, a project of Bacheva Learning Center. We're here to offer you an authentic Torah learning experience, produced for women, by women. I hope you enjoy. If you'd like to follow along inside the text, you can find a fully vowelized PDF of the DAF at www.batshevalearningcenter.com slash DAF. Thank you so much to Mary Burke for sponsoring today's episode. Hello, welcome back. We are learning DAF Memvav of Saita today. I'm going to be continuing our discussion about the mitzvah of Egla Arufa. So we're actually going to pick up in the middle of Mem Hey Amid Bees, towards the bottom, the first Mishnah on the page. Um, So we discussed who goes out to measure the dead body uh, and where that dead body might be found. Uh, And now we're going to discuss the halachas of, um, you know, the results of the measurement, right? The elders are meant to go out and measure the distance between the body and the nearest city. Uh, And so this Mishnah is going to list a number of different scenarios which might occur. So let's say uh, the elders discovered if the body is exactly uh, equidistant between two cities, right? They both bring an agla rufa, two total. That's Rebilezer's opinion. Um, so Rebilezer believes that, you know, it's possible to be so exacting in measurement that one could really determine that this, this body is exactly in between the two cities. Uh, but that's exclusively Rabbi Lazar's view. Okay, uh, next halacha. The Ain Yerushalayim via Egla Rufa. Uh, the city of Yerushalayim does not bring an Egla Rufa. If there's a body found outside the city, uh, no egg, no ceremony uh, is done. Nimsa Let's say uh, the head of the body was found in one spot and the body, you know, the torso was found in another. Uh, so Rabbi Lezer says uh, we bring the head near the body uh, and we measure from the spot where the torso is found. Rabbi Akiva says you have to uh, bring the body to the head. Sorry, it's not for the purpose of measurement. We'll discuss in the Gemara which context this is in. Um the next halacha tells us where to measure from. Right? Where would they measure from? So Rabbi Eliezer, I'm Armiti Burai. Rabbi Eliezer says they would measure from the navel of the of the body. Rabbi Akiva, I'm Armiti Rabbi Akiva says from the nostril. Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov, I'm Armiti Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov says it's from you measure from the spot where he was slain, which is his neck. Okay. So the Gemara, the Gemara is going to start by analyzing the first statement in our Mishnah, that of Rabbi Azir, who said that uh, if a body is found equidistant between two cities, both cities bring an Agla. So my time with Rabbi Azir, right? What's the reason of Rabbi Azir? Kasavar, he believes after Litzamsim, it's possible to be exact in measurement. Ukraiva, Afilu Kraivas, and also the, although the, Pasuk says it's the closest city that brings an Egla Rufa. There could even be plural, two close cities which bring an Egla Rufa. Uh, now the mission doesn't explicitly state uh, the other view, but apparently the other and probably majority view is that it's not really possible to be too, so exacting 
uh, and measurement. Uh, and whenever a body is found equidistant between two cities, we'd have to assume it really is slightly closer to one and the other. Uh, we just don't know which one that is. And so instead of bringing two aglos, uh, both cities would bring, would come, like elders from each city would come together and do the ritual over one egla, and they would make a stipulation, you know, we don't know which one of us is really supposed to bring it. So we're gonna do, we're gonna uh, do the ritual with just one heifer, uh, and whoever, you know, they kind of make a condition, whoever is really supposed to bring this cow, it should be on their account, uh, right? So that would be the other view. Okay. The eight, so next, the Mishnah said, "Ain Yerushalayim of the Eglat Rufa." The city of Yerushalayim does not bring an Eglat Rufa. The Amarkra Lerishta. It says that in one, the pasuk says, if a body is found slain um, uh, outside of one of the cities, you were given to inherit. Uh, right, the Tana of our Mishnah believes that Yerushalayim was not split up amongst. The Shvatim, it rather belongs to everyone equally, right? There was no particular Shavit which conquered it and owned it. Uh, and so therefore, Yerushalayim is not included. Names the Rosh right? So we had a halacha, uh, a disagreement about a, a situation where the head is found in one spot and the body is found in another spot. Uh, and there's a dispute about whether you should bring the head to the body or the body to the head. So the Gemara asks, what are they arguing about? Maybe you could say they're arguing about where to measure from. Uh, they're arguing about where to measure from. But that doesn't make any sense. Later on in the Mishnah, the Mishnah asks the question, where do they measure from? And that's where we got the different opinions of either the navel or the nostril. Right. So clearly, Earlier in the Mishnah, when it talks about bringing the head near the body or vice versa, it's talking about something different, not where to measure from. Uh, so we cloud the Reisha, Lobu Bimedida Askina. So that uh, implies that the first, the earlier part of the Mishnah is not uh, is not about where to measure from. Amar Reitzlik, so Reitzlik said, he explained, what's this? Uh, clause talking about um, the mace mitzvah kind of kind of come up They're arguing about uh, the application of the principle of the halacha that a mace mitzvah, someone who is found dead and unidentified, uh, must be buried in its place. Right? You don't bring it to a cemetery. That person is supposed to be who's murdered must be buried in the spot uh, where the murder occurred. Um, so Bahaki Kamar is what I was saying. Uh, right. So with regard to burying the body, the body must be acquires its place. It must be buried in that exact spot. Uh, in a space where, in a situation where the head is found in one place and the body is found in another. believes you need to bring the head to the body uh, and bury the entire body where the torso is found. Rabbi Lakiva, Rabbi Kiva says you bring the body to the head and you better bury the entire body where the head was found. But my complete, okay, so, but what exactly are they arguing about? What is motivating each of these opinions? Um, so, Mar Savar, Gufe, Bajukte, Nafel, Reishi, Dinadi, Manafel, right? So, Rabbi Eliezer believes that the, uh, the body stayed in one spot and it was the it was the head which rolled away, right? And that's why you need to bring the head near the body. We assume that's where both the head and the body originally were. Umar Sava, Reisha, Hecha, Danafil, Nafil, Gufa, who derived Ba'azel. Ariyakiva believes the head stays in one place, uh, and it's the body which kind of squirmed uh, 
and moved for their luck. May I invite it in? Okay, the last part of the Mishnah uh, quoted a three-way disagreement about where, which part of the body the elders would measure from. So, right, and we had either the nostril, the navel, or the place where the person was slain, uh, the neck. Right, so what are they arguing about? What's motivating uh, this Mufflikas? So, um, right, so Rabbi believes the main, uh, you know, the principal source of life within a person is in the nostril. Umar Savar Iker Khayusabitibori. Um so Rabbi Lazar believes that the the um the principal like center of life within a person is the navel, right? That's where the digestive system is. Um right so Lema Kihana tonight, right? So we have this kind of disagreement between where the source of life is perhaps this disagreement can be paralleled to a disagreement uh, of another two tenaim. Uh, and the disagreement is as follows. Um, tenaim disagree. Mehechan havlad nightsar. Where is the fetus created from? Which part of the fetus's body is created first? Mehreisha, um, right? So one opinion is that it's from the head. Um, right? Out of my mother's womb, you pulled me. Uh, and we know that we see that the word guzi is associated with hair of the head. Uh, right, cut off the locks of your hair and cast it away. Um, and so we see here that the head is associated with the forming of the fetus. Abashal, Amir Abashal disagrees, and he says a fetus is formed mitiboro from the navel. Uh, and from that like central point, uh, the roots are sent forth. Um, and so perhaps. You know, we can say that Riyakiva agrees with the first opinion uh, quoted, and Rabbi Lezer agrees with Abishal, uh, because he's th- who said that the fetus is formed from the navel. Sorry, just before you go on to the next part, um, this, 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 this disagreement here, right, about where the fetus is formed from. So there's this fascinating discussion in a sefer called Arve Nachal, which is by Rabbi David Shlaim Abishitz, and he... Um, he, the, the, this, this explanation is actually given on Parshish Truma, which is, talks all about the building of the Mishkan and the contributions that the Jewish people gave to the Mishkan. And not to get it's, it's long, very beautiful essay, sort of, but just to give sort of the, the basic point, which is connected to here, um, he says that there's there's sort of this parallel between Eilam um, Shana and Nefesh, right? Eilam means space, Shana means time, and Nefesh means the soul, the person. Um, and he says that in all three of these, these realms, there's the heart. Um, and in space, the Mishkan is the is sort of the heart of the world, the center of the world. Um, and when it comes to the Mishkan, right, there was sort of this like this um, reciprocal relationship between the Mishkan and the Jewish people, where um, the Jewish people would sort of bring their contributions to the Mishkan, and then through them sort of giving their contribution to the Mishkan, the Mishkan would then sort of reciprocate and give them back this this kedusha. And there was sort of this like this give and take of like them bringing their their um, this their, their contribution to the Mishkan, the Mishkan then giving them back this this infusing them with this um, with this energy, and that's similar to the way physically the body, right? The heart is sort of in the center of the body, and the heart pumps blood to all the limbs of the body, and then that blood then circulates back to the heart again. Um, and then he says, explains really beautifully there that this also. Um, this also parallels a person's spiritual life. That in the spiritual life, a person has sometimes things can start with the heart, right? Meaning like they can, their service of Hashem can start with this sort of inspiration that 
that, that their heart is triggered by something um, and that then impacts the rest of the body, impacts their actions. Um, and sometimes it works the other way around. Sometimes the person is able to start with, with um, doing something and that then goes back and influences the heart. Um, and he says that's why the, the, the argument in this Kamar here is really saying that, right? It's saying like, where's the fetus formed from, right? Is, do we start from the heart, from the center, or do we start from another limb in the body? Um, which one comes first? And of course, the answer is really both, right? Sometimes it starts with that that emotional inspiration and, so, and that, you know, influences the rest of the body, influences the person's actions, and sometimes it's, it's the reverse. Um, so yeah, just a little bit of like a you know, symbolic understanding of that, of that disagreement. It's not just about, you know, the biology. <laughs> mm. Right. Um, and so, so the Gemara is going to move forward and, and reject this uh, particular parallel and say, you know, it's true that there's this like disagreement in that other context. Uh, but um, it could be that even Abishal would agree, would agree with both opinions uh, in our Mishnah. Abilatim Abashal, even Abashal, who says an embryo is formed from the navel, could agree with Rabbi Akiva uh, that um, even with, you know, even Rabbi Akiva, that, uh, you know, the source of life is in the nose. Odd Khan, like Amr Abashal, Elili Inyanid Sira, right? Or Abashal was only talking about the very narrow uh, category of when the fetus is formed. He believes that when the Fetus has formed, it's formed from the middle. Uh, but with regard to the life force, everyone agrees that the life force is found in the, in the nostrils. Um, it says all of those in whose nostrils there's the breath of life. Okay, so there was a third opinion in our Mishnah, uh, right? Aside from Rabbi Leazar and Rabbi Akiva, there was the opinion of Rabbi Leazar ben Yaakov. I remember, right? Uh, you, the elders measure from the place that the person was made was slain, which was his neck. My time with Rabbi Leazar, what is Rabbi Leazar's reasoning? Uh, uh, it's based on a pasuk in Yechazkel to lay you upon the necks of the wicked who are to be slain, right? So there's association between a halal, something with, which someone who is slain, uh, and the neck, uh, and therefore he believes that the point of measurement has nothing to do with where the source of life is. It simply has to do with the part of the body that's associated with murder. Okay, moving on to the next Mishnah. Um, we're now going to discuss the particulars of the egla arufa of the heifer that is used in the ritual, uh, and what they actually do with the egla and what they say over it. All right, so this is after they've, um, you know, measured the body, they figured out exactly what city to go to, which city the body is closest to. Uh, and then what happens? So the Mishnah says, the elders of Jerusalem leave and go away. Um, right, and the elders of the city, which is closest to the body, uh, go out into the field. They bring with them a heifer, um, which never pulled the yoke. The right, and but it's allowed to have blemishes in contrast to a carbine or in contrast to the egla uh, rufa for the purposes of, of purification. Uh, the, those animals all are not allowed to have any blemishes but this egla is allowed to have a blemish a disqualifying blemish uh and we read an isolation and they bring it down to a strong stream the word asan is uh meant here 
literally in the sense of very strong and forceful. But although, you know, ideally one should bring it to a strong string, if it if the spring was not strong, it is kosher. But our friend, I said the kaipits, they break its neck with the cleaver from the back. And that place where the cattle's neck is broken, uh, it's forbidden to... Uh, plant there or to work the land. But it's permitted to comb flax or cut stones there. So the elders of the city would then wash their hands in the water, in the place of the breaking of the neck of the agla. And they would say, Our hands have not spilled this blood. And our eyes didn't see it. Uh, right, and they continue on. This is this is all detailed in the pasuk in Devarim Chavalaf. Right, this is exactly they have to say exactly those words. Now the Mishnah takes a step back and says, "Hey, the Chiyal Datenu also Shazikne Basin Shayfei Damanhein." Right? Did anyone accuse the elders of the Basin of spilling blood? Right? Why do they have to make this declaration, sort of absolving themselves from murdering this man? So Allah, but. Uh, they're they're making this declaration to say that they haven't they aren't you know compl- implicit complicit in some way uh, by neglecting to care for this person right they say right he did not come to us uh, you know for food of and we let him go without food and we didn't see him and leave him alone at and uh, without accompaniments outside of the city. Uh, as to say, we, we were not negligent in taking care of him, or and we made sure that we did everything we could to those who visit our city uh, to ensure their safety. After this declaration by the elders, Hakahanim, I'm the Gahanim, uh, also have to say a piece, and they say, Right? They say, like, forgive Hashem, forgive your people, Israel, who you've redeemed, and let them not suffer, uh, you know, because of innocent blood. And this is a direct quote from the Pasuk in Devarim, uh, the end of that Pasuk actually says, right? And the blood shall be absolved for them. So you might think that the Kahana need to finish the Pasuk and say those words, uh, but the Mishnah tells us, no, the Kahanam do not need to say the conclusion of that Pasuk and the blood will be atoned for them. Right? Those words in the Pasuk are the divine spirit. It's Hashem telling them, uh, if you do everything I just told you, and the Kahanim and, and the elders do everything I just told you, the blood will be forgiven for you. Okay, thus ends the Mishnah. Now we'll jump right into the Gemara. So, okay. they hate more. Sorry, before we jump in, um, just a little bit about this mitzvah of Leviya, right? This mitzvah of escorting someone, um, which we say that that they, right, the, the elders have to sort of, you know, proclaim that they didn't... Um, they didn't, um, you know, allow this person who, who was murdered to, to not be escorted outside the city. Um, so first of all, what is the mitzvah of Levia? So um, there's a few different answers of like what what that mitzvah is um, and and why why that's like such a serious thing. So one of them is just like, you know, very simply that the mitzvah of Levia is to sort of escort someone um, outside the city um, because we're assuming that it's a dangerous place, as a dangerous for the person to be traveling by themselves. So you're sort of kind of accompanying them and protecting them on their way. Um, the Maharal says that it's not just a sort of physical protection, but it's also a spiritual protection. Um, he says that you know if you're if you're not escorting the person outside the city, you're, and you're sort of like just letting them 
you know, leave on their own, um, that sort of show, demonstrates a lack of consideration or care for the, the other person. And this is what the Maharal calls an ayanhara, right? Ayanhara doesn't just mean like being jealous of someone else, but even if you're just not expressing any care or consideration, then that spiritually um, makes them more susceptible to being harmed. Um, and that's what makes you actually responsible for something that might happen to them, right? Even though you didn't actually directly cause them harm, but by not, by, you know, sort of not showing any um, consideration for them and respect and, you know, escorting them, you're, you're making them more um, susceptible to, to harm. Um, and that's, and that's why, you know, the via is necessary. Um, another, I guess, more psychological explanation is that, you know, you know, if you're showing the person respect and, and by escorting them outside the city, then that, you know, psychologically gives them confidence, give them emotional strength to be able to, you know, succeed on their journey, just like food, right? The two examples here are giving the person food and, and escorting them, just like food, you know, strengthens the physical body, um, the escorting them and giving them that, showing that, that care, um, strengthens them emotionally to be able to, you know, survive this journey. Um, so that's why the, the, the elders of the, of the elders are sort of, you know, expressing the fact that they gave this person, they, they, they weren't responsible. They were, sorry, they were, they took responsibility to give this, this person, both of those things, both physical and spiritual, um, strength. Now, of course, um, you know, even though, um, like even, even if the elders didn't do this, right. Um, you know, it doesn't mean they're actually causing this person's death, right? But sort of another way of, of looking at this whole, this proclamation that they're making is that, you know, the, the leaders of the community sort of have a trickle-down effect on the rest of the people, right? So one explanation for this is that, you know, the, the elders of the city, if they, um, you know, if they just did something so even as, um, you know, seemingly... Um, seemingly benign, right, as just not escorting someone outside the city or not giving them food, right, something which seems to be not so significant and showing even like a slightly slightly less consideration for these guests than the people who are a little bit less in a, a little bit of a less prominent position than them is going to do even less than that, right? And the people who are on a lower level will do even less than that until it filters down to the person who's on the, you know, the most, you know, um, insensitive person in the community will end up actually committing murder, right? The idea here is that even if they themselves aren't directly responsible for the harm that this person um, experienced, but because they're the leaders, they have this impact on the entire community and whatever decisions they make or whatever like slight mistakes they make um, is going to have a trickle down impact on everybody else and you know uh, the lowest you know people in that community and that society are going to end up doing something committing um an act um such as murder um and and actually there's alter shapira he actually explains this is why you know the, the elders are bringing the Eglarufa, even though they're not guilty right they're, they're making this proclamation that they didn't um that they didn't uh that they you know they they they're not responsible they didn't they didn't um let this person leave without food or or um or escort, but this idea of them being the leaders and them being taking responsibility anyway um, is very profound, right? Because the, the idea is that because they're the leaders of the community, even if they themselves aren't personally responsible, they should have davened and and sort of prayed that something like this doesn't happen under their leadership. And because they didn't do that, that's why even right, even if you know they they did everything that they could in their power to to make sure this doesn't happen, um, 
we're st- we're, st- we're, st- we're still sort of expecting them as leaders to have um, to have prayed that this doesn't happen under their leadership. Okay. Um, so thanks for that, Hadatha. And with that, we'll jump right into the Gemara. The Gemara has been involved. Um, we're going to be analyzing uh, and comparing and contrasting the requirements for an Egla Arufa and a Para Aduma. Um, they have similarities in that they both cannot be worked, used for any work before being used. Um, and But they also have differences, right? Um, so, so uh, like, for example, this the Igla Rufa can only be under two years old. Um, sorry, under one years old. Um, whereas a Paraduma has no such requirement. Uh, and it also another difference between the two is that a Paraduma cannot have any blemishes. Uh, whereas we said an Igla Rufa is allowed to have a blemish, right? So we're going to, with that, those similarities and differences in mind that will be helpful for us as we dive into the Gemara, which is going to use the Psukim and try to analyze the Psukim and see how we know that these differences and or similarities exist. Okay, uh, so the Mishnah had said, that first difference the Mishnah had said, uh, which was that was that an Egla Rupa is allowed to have a mum, a blemish on its body. Um, and so the bar questions this and says, "Hey, the hey mum posal the egla and we call the chomer, right? We should a mum should invalidate an egla rufa because of a kavachimer, uh, a logical, um, you know, analysis. What is it? So uma para she'en hashanam poselis ba mum posal ba. So just like uh, para aduma, right? And a para aduma has no age limit, right? A para aduma can be any age." So it has that leniency, but it still has the stringency of of not of being disqualified because of a mom. Egla an egla, which is disqualified if it's over a certain age. How much more so this egla, which is stricter uh, with regard to the age requirement, should also be strict with regard to uh, being disqualified due to a mom. So the Gemara says no. Shani Hasam, there's a difference uh, with the Egla, the Paraduma is different because the the, the Pasuk there uses the word Ba, Asher Ein Ba Mum, which it doesn't have a Mum. Ba Mum Paisel, right? A, a blemish disqualifies it, a Paraduma, the Ein Mum Paisel, the Egla, right? And a Mum does not disqualify an Egla. Okay, great. But. So the Gemara says, hey, wait a second. If we're going to use the word ba uh, as as being exclusionary, right, and saying that but only applies, uh, you know, to it and not anything else, uh, right, the uh, para aduma should not be disqualified by any other by any other work aside from pulling a yoke, right? So if you look at the Pesukim with the Gartan Ayla Rufa, uh, the only... Um, the only prohibition there is is to use a paraduma to use a cow which has pulled a yoke, right? Seemingly, from the straightforward meaning of the pasuk, you could use a paraduma to do anything else. You could use it to, I don't know, stomp on your grain, thresh your field, whatever. You could ride on it, whatever you want. You could pull a wagon with it. Well, I guess that would involve using an oak yoke. But I'm saying you could do any work with it. You could use it to carry your bags, right? Uh, any work that doesn't require a yoke would be fine. Um, but the only the halacha actually is that any work is prohibited. So how do we know that if it's not on the public? So we know that through a call we use that by, con- which we're going to discuss 
momentarily a kavachimer, a comparison between paraduma and eglarupa, just like an eglarupa is prohibited uh, from doing any type of work, even if there's a yoke, so too a uh, a paraduma is prohibited from doing any type of work, right? So we we learned these, uh, you know, the comparison between these two heifers uh, helps us derive that halacha. So, but now, but if we're going to use the word va to exclude and limit the um, halacha category of paraduma, uh, and, you know, the halachas of paraduma only apply to it and nothing else, that would seem to preclude our comparing and contrasting the two uh area of the palacha. Uh, and if we're not going to compare and contrast, we're not going to use a kal uh, then we would have to take the psukim at face value. And layahu sharabitis, paislitz, but other types of work besides for pulling a yoke would be, uh, would not invalidate a parajuma. Uh, right? And if and that can't be true, alama amorabihuda amarav. So then why then, if a paraduma uh, is allowed to do any type of work besides for being pulled by a yoke, then why then did Rabbi Huda say in the name of Rav, if you put a bundle of sacks on a paraduma, uh, it is possible, right? You didn't do anything. You didn't, you know, you didn't, you did nothing except put a load on its back. That already invalidates the paraduma. But an egla is only invalid once you actually pull the yoke and pull the animal forward. Uh, so clearly, you know, the paraduma is invalidated by any type of work. So we say shani para, a paraduma is different. Uh, this particular halacha is different. Right, we, there's a similar word used in the context of a paraduma and the context of an egla. They both use the word all, right? A uh, yoke should not be put on it. Uh, and so therefore, uh, we know we can uh, equate the two areas of halakha, and just like an agla can't have any work done with it, so too a para can't have any work done with it. Okay, um, so if that's true, if we so if we have this sort of juxtaposition, this gzera shava, which is equating these two areas of law, uh, so egla nami titi ol ome para, right? Um, then, you know, then we should also, we should use like Zereshava the other way. And we should say, we should learn Allah with regard to the Egla Rufa. And we should learn that a blemish should disqualify an Egla Rufa because all, all, they both use the same, shares a word with para. Uh, and so the Gemara says, ha rahman right? That's why the, the Pasuk used the exclusionary word, ba, right? So you have this tension, right? Uh, if you, so to speak, between the Zereshava of all, which is, like pushing us to find a similarity between the two areas of halacha. And we also, on the other hand, on balancing the scale, we have the exclusionary word, ba, telling us to separate the two areas of halacha. Uh, and so that's how we know that there is a similarity and that they both can't do any types of work. There's also a difference and that only a paraduma uh, is disqualified by a blemish. So now the Gemara says, hey, wait a second, that was really nice, but right? we also see the word ba written uh, by egla, right? In the Pasuk where it says, you know, uh, 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 the, the egla rufa can't do any work, it says, but it can't do any work, right? Which would seem to indicate, using the same logic we said before, the Pasuk says it can't do any work, that would seem to indicate it, but 
nothing else. The paraduma can do other work, right? So our own logic is kind of working against us. So the, the Gemara says, hey, the word ba is coming to exclude something, but it's not coming to exclude the paraduma. It's coming to exclude kachim, right? Car- animals um, sanctified for carbonates. Right? That uh, carb- animals designated for a carbon are not disqualified by being worked. Uh, right? You might have thought that uh, carbonized uh, are disqualified by work because you would have had, you would have, um, you know, constructed a kavachimer uh, by and compared it to egla. If an egla rufa, which is lenient in the respect that um, a mum doesn't disqualify it, is disqualified by work, uh, for which a blemish does disqualify them, like how much more so uh, it should be disqualified by being worked. Right? Uh, so now parenthetical note, uh, the Gemara notes that actually this Kalvachimer, this hypothetical comparison, which might have led you to the mistaken conclusion that Karbanites uh, are are disqualified of being worked, is actually flawed. Ikala Mehrach, one could uh, refute that Kalvachimer. Mala Egla, Shekane, Shana, Paisalispa, right? Uh, and Egla actually does have a stringency uh, over Kachim in that it can only be a certain age. Um, so since the, uh, Egla Rufa has that stringency, um, the Kavachimer kind of falls apart, right? The Kavachimer is predicated on the fact that an Egla is generally is generally uh, more lenient um, and therefore a Kachim, which is more stringent, should therefore, you know, also be disqualified by work. But we see in another respect that an Egla Rufa is actually more stringent in that there's an age limit in contrast to Kachim. Um... Now the Gemara says, wait a second, that's not true. Atu Kachim, me, Lika, Depasla, who shot him. Like, actually, there are plenty of Kurbanites which are have an age limit, right? That you need to have, uh, you know, either, right, like a Karim Pesach or a Chatas needs to be, uh, you know, within a year, right? So there definitely are Kurbanites which have an age limit. Um, so therefore, so therefore, for those Kurbanites, the Kalbachimer would st- still be in effect, right? Because they are essentially. Uh, equivalent to the Egla Rufa. So, 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 so we need a Pasuk to negate that Kalvachimer uh, for those Kachim, which are, do, do have an age limit. Uh, and so that's why the Pasuk sort of clears up any confusion uh, and tells us that uh, Karbanas um, do not, are not disqualified through work. So now the Gemara says, okay, great. So this ba is not excluding a paraduma, it's excluding kachim. But hey, we don't, that doesn't make any sense. We don't need this pasuk to teach us that kachim cannot, uh, are are not disqualified through work. We can learn that from an entirely different pasuk. Um, do we learn the halacha that kachim are not disqualified through work from here? Um, we actually learn that halacha from there, from a different place. Uh, it says blind or broken, maimed, having a wart, scabbed or sickly, you should not offer these types of animals to Hashem. These you may not 
offered to Hashem. Right? That was an exhaustive list of all of the things that you cannot bring. You cannot bring these, but you can bring uh, animals which have been worked in the field. Right. So this kind of so the Gemara says, you know, what, Ikhtar, you actually need both sukkim. You need to learn about it from here in Bayikra. And you also need to learn about it again in our Pasuk about Agla Rupa from the word Ba. Why? Sulka Daita Khamina, you might have if you know the, the Torah would have just mentioned this halakha once, I might have thought, Hani Mile, Hekad I would have thought, oh, the animal is allowed to be brought as a carbon. If it was worked uh, with permissible labor, right? But you might have thought if the animal was worked, used for forbidden labor, it would be forbidden. Uh, so, for example, if it was used to work on Shabbos, right, uh, or to uh, you know, in or if it was used together with an animal of a different type, right, kilayim, right. So. Uh, then I might have thought that it's not allowed. So therefore, it's Shrika. We needed the second Pathak to indicate, no, 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 you could really use any animal that was used for any work, even forbidden labor. So the Gemara is like, all right, fine, but not so fast. We actually have a third Pathak where this Halacha is taught. Uh, another Pathak in Bayekra, um, actually three Pathakim later. Umiyad ben Nechar leita krivu est lechem elechechem mikol elech. Uh, and it says, from the hand of the stranger, like a non-Jew, you should not offer the bread of your God from any of these because the Pesach finishes off because they are blemished, right? Saying even you should not take a blemished animal from a non-Jew. Uh, now, again, we have the same, a similar um, analysis of this Pesach. It says, Ela, these animals you should not bring. Ela, Iatamakrib, you should not bring these animals. Abel, Atamakrib, Kachim, Shinevda, but you can bring animals uh, which have been worked in the field, right? So why do we have this third Pesach? So the Gemara says, it's direct, you actually need all three Pesachim. You need this third Pesach. Why? Because, so could I you know, you might have thought, Hani Mili, these words apply that you're allowed to use a, an animal that was used for work. When you use them while they were still ordinary animals, if you worked them once they were already sanctified and designated as a carbon, you might have thought that that would uh, disqualify them. So that's why you need that third Pasuk to teach you that even that type of work animal uh, is permitted. Okay, so we've kind of closed our um, analysis here, right? We've discovered that uh, indeed, um, you know, uh, we've we've learned how we derive the halachas that only uh, a paraduma is disqualified from a blemish, but both a paraduma and a glabrupa cannot be used for any work. Now we're going to kind of go back and analyze one of the halachas we quoted before. Gufa. We're going to turn to a, a bryce we quoted before. Amar Rabbi Huda Amarav. Uh, Rabbi Huda Amarav had said, If you placed a bundle of uh, sacks, right, onto a paraduma, psula, that alone disqualifies it. Right, but an egla rupa, uh, an egla rupa is only invalidated once it is drawn with the yoke, right? So we see that although both the paraduma and the egla rufa are disqualified through labor, uh, the paraduma is more sensitive <laughs> to any type of labor, right? Even if you just put it on 
even just putting a load on the paradumo would disqualify it, whereas the eglarupa requires actually using and pulling the animal towards you. So, we have an objection to this halacha from another brisa. So the other, this other Bryce that says as follows, all ainly ala all, right? The word yoke, right? The says that the paraduma uh, cannot have a yoke upon it, right? So from that pus, like you might thought, ainly ala all, right? A, a paraduma can, is only disqualified from having a yoke upon it. So how do I know the paraduma? As we discussed before, how would I know that the paraduma uh, cannot be used for other types of work? So I'm right, so you have to you have to use a kavachimer uh, and say the following. Just as an egla, right? Um, which is not disqualified by a mum. So it's lenient in that respect. Even that lenient uh, you know, area of halacha in the um Sha'ara it still is stringent in that it cannot be used for any work and any work disqualifies it. Para shamum uh para duma, which is more strict and that a blemish does disqualify it. Aino din shasara bedes paislinba, would it not make sense uh, and be the you know, obvious logical conclusion that other types of work besides a yoke disqualify it? The imshap nafshaklaimer khan all, nafshaklaimer khan all, whatever all. So in nafshaklaimer, sorry, uh, just gonna translate when I punctuate this accurate. So the im nafshach, and if you wish to say, uh, I'm not happy with that answer, right? That kalvachimer doesn't do it for me. Uh, then I have another answer for you. Nomer khan all the nomer lahalan all. Right? It says there's actually exera sheva which can teach you this exact same halacha. It says in both places in the context of paraduma and eglaruva the word all yoke. So that exera sheva teaches us that we need to juxtapose both areas of halacha malahalan sharavetes paisleisva just like with an eglaruva it is disqualified by all types of work. Afkan sharavetes paisleis so too here with the paraduma other avetes disqualify it. Okay, so that's the end of the brisa. The second answer in the brisa should be familiar to us. That's the answer we saw before. Uh, but the first part of the brisa is unfamiliar. Right? We see this kind of call behind, which was which is news to us. Uh, and it's also kind of interesting how the brisa kind of hedges. Right, first it's like, well, I'll give you this answer, and if you don't like that, I'll give you the Xer Shaba. What's going on here? Why isn't the brisa happy with with just one answer? Right, so. The Gemara asks, my imnafshaf, what does the Bryce mean? Oh, if you want to say, I don't like the Xerashava, I'll give you, uh, I don't like the Kalvachimer, I'll give you Xerashava. What's going on? Um, so the Gemara explains, the Gemara explains that there, there's a possible refutation, uh, you know, or rebuttal to the Xerashava. The Chitema, you might say, Ikala Mifrach, one can refute this Kalvachimer easily. Mala Egla, Shekane Shed, and Paisleisba, right? It's not true that the Egla Rufa is such a lenient area of Halacha. Uh, there's an, an area where it's more stringent um, because it's the it has an age limit, right? And a paradigm doesn't have an age limit. Um, so inami, alternatively, another way to refute this kabbalchimer, uh, karbanais will prove that it's not necessarily true that every time you know a mum 
disqualifies uh, some an animal. Uh, it can't be. It's disqualified by work. Uh, carbon isoric, the example is, is a great proof of that. Uh, carbon is disqualified by a mum, but and it's not disqualified by work, right? So obviously, you know, such a category of animal exists. And so it's very logical to assume that paraduma is just like a carbon, right? Um, so because of those two possible rebuttals, uh, the Brysa brought a Xera uh, Sheva instead, right? And it said, Nemer Khan all, Nemer Lahalan all, right? It says in both places the word all, Ma Lahalan Sharvitis, just like with an Egla Rufa, all types of work, Afkan Sharvitis, so too with the Paraduma, all types of work disqualify it. So the Gemara says, hey, wait a second, if we're using this word all to equate both areas of halacha and saying that both the Egla Rufa and the Paraduma are equally disqualified by work, we makim Shabbatza from that place. Why is there this distinction? Remember in that first verse that we quoted, uh, we saw that there is a subtle distinction between the Paraduma and Egla Rufa and that the Paraduma is disqualified by just putting a load on it, whereas an Egla Rufa is only disqualified once it's pulled. So, but if we have this Gzera Shav of all, why is there even that distinction? Right, we makim shabbatza from that place of the gzera shabbat. We should say the following: Malahalin on shetimshach, avkan on shetimshach. Right, just like the egla rufa is not disqualified until it's pulled, so too the paraduma should only be disqualified until it's pulled. Right, so these two brisas seem to me in conflict. Uh, right, the brisa of Rabbi Huda Amarab seems to think there is a slight difference between the egla rufa and paraduma, uh, whereas the following brisa which uh, quoted the Xer Shava of an all-all, uh, seemed to say that there would imp- would imply that there is no distinction between uh, the requirements of not being able to work the animal. So the Gemara says, Tana'ihi, right? There is a dispute amongst the Tana'im uh, about how we, right? And so each Brisa is just reflecting the view of another school of Tana'i. Right, so one school of Tanaim, he um, so one school of Tanaim, uh, there are those who learn uh, that an aparaduma can't do any type of work, uh, due to Xera Shava, and those Tanaim would say there is actually no difference between the halachic requirements for each animal, um, but Ika Demaisila me gufa depara. There are those who uh, cite the source of the Talaka from a Paraduma itself, um, right? And they say that they learn internally from Sukkim about the Paraduma that um, uh, Paraduma can't do any type of work. And therefore, that that those Tanaim are the ones who would have a distinction between the types of work that disqualify each type of animal. Okay, so how do they know this? How do they know Um you know, what are the so- what is the source of that school of Tanaim? How do they know that a paraduma can't do any type of work? So Datanya, as we see in the following Brisa, all ainly ella all, right? The word the Pasak with regard to paraduma only mentions a yoke, that it can't wear a yoke. So from that Pasak, I might think only a yoke is prohibited. Shara Badis and how do I know other types of work are prohibited? Talmud Lamar. So uh, I learned this from the Pasuk. If you analyze the Pasuk, it says, Asher lai ala aleha ol, right? This needs to be a red heifer, w- upon which no yoke went was upon her, right? Um, 
So if you could read the word, you could read the Pasuk with a pause in it. Asher lai ala alaha, right? Because it says ala alaha, right? Adding that superfluous word, alaha. Uh, so that could be read upon which nothing came upon her, right? Nothing at all, uh, including any type of labor. So the past, so the Gemara is like, okay, so that's very nice. We call Makai. Uh, nevertheless, MK and are all all, right? So if that's the case that we could have learned, you know, this halacha internally just from the Pasuk of Paraduma, then what what is the function of the Gzera Shaba of all all? Right? Apparently, right, there apparently there was a tradition that the Gzera Shaba all all was teaching us something, right? So if it's not teaching us that, what is it teaching? Teaching us, so it teaches us uh, a different halacha. Paisal bein b'shasavayda, bein shalei b'shasavayda. Right, that the that the yoke placed on if a yoke is placed on an animal, it disqualifies it, whether the yoke is placed on it at a time of work or not in a time of work. Right, even if you just put place the yoke on it just casually, it would still disqualify the animal. But any other type of work is only disqualifies the animal at the time of actually performing the labor. Um, so the Gemara says, hey, wait a second. So, right, so that's that we just right now resolved the, you know, the explaining two different schools of Tanaim, the two different schools of thought, which led to different categorizations of the types of labor uh, permitted for the Paraduma. Uh, and we said that the school of thought, the second school of thought, uh, believed that there was a distinction between a paraduma and eglarupa, and that was because they learned from the pasuk describing the paraduma itself uh, that a paraduma can't do any type of labor, uh, and therefore the paradumas, the laws of labor for the paraduma are much stricter than that for the eglarupa. So the gemara is going to object to that source from that pasuk. We said the source for that. Uh, that school of uh, those Tanaim believe the source for the halacha is the pasuk lai Allah alaha all. Uh, and the Gemara says, actually, if you, you could read that pasuk and come to the opposite conclusion, not the conclusion that any type of labor is permitted, but the conclusion that only all is per, is prohibited. Um, so the Ema, you might say, asher lai Allah alaha all, lai Allah alaha, the words, uh, that, uh, you know, a heifer upon which nothing came, no work came, claw, that's a general statement. And then it says, oh, yoke, which is a prat, which is a, a specific detail. So we discussed this actually way back when at the beginning of the Masech on the second parak. Uh, we discussed the idea of claw and prat. So it's a kind of a method of analysis, uh, you know, which uh, characteristic of Rabbi Shmuel, uh, which is that when you have a generalized, when a pasuk tells you a general principle and then a specific detail, an example, uh, we interpret that we interpret the general principle as and limits and we limit it as only referring to the example, right? So, um, you know, for example, if the pasuk says uh, you should bring an animal as a carbon, a sheep. Right? So there's a general principle, bring an animal, and then a, a specific thing, a sheep. Uh, the, we would interpret that as meaning you should only bring a sheep, right? Bring an animal, but what type of animal? A sheep, right? So uh, that's called klal uprat, right? So the rule is klal uprat. If the Pusik says a general principle and then a detail, in the klal elamashavaprat, you apply the general principle only to the detail and you limit the general principle uh, so it only encompasses the detail, right? So upon which nothing came, a yoke, uh, right? So that would mean, that would, if we apply this principle to this passage, it would mean all in, a yoke, yes, 
right, is prohibited. Media Karina low, but anything else is not prohibited. So the Gemara says, yes, that's true. That would that would be the implication of lai ala alaha all. But it has the word asher, which asher riboyahu. Uh, the word asher is an amplifying word and indicates that we should expand the scope of light Allah so it encompasses any type of work. But Tanya Nami Gabi Eglaki Haigavna. So there's a similar brisa, uh, which is you know along similar lines. But this brisa is about an Egla Arufa, right? Uh, the previous one was about a Parazuma. We're going to do a similar brisa, which is a similar analysis from the uh, on the psukim of an Egla Arufa. So uh, the, the Pasuk, when describing the Agla Rufa, says the word all, right? It needs to be a heifer, uh, which no yoke was placed upon it. So only el all. So the Pasuk just says no yoke was placed upon it. How do I know that other work also disqualifies it? Minayan from where? So Tom and Lamar share like uvadba, right? The, the, that same Pasuk says, uh, which has not been worked with. Um, so Mikal Mako. Right, so in any case. So in Cain, Ma Tamil Lamer all all. So if that's so, what's the function of the of the of the Xerishava all all, right? Uh, if we can know all on their own from this Pasuk that any type of work disqualifies the Egla Rufa, what do we need the Xerishava of all all for? So that's teaching us something else. Hosel Bain Bishasaboda, Bain Shalobashasaboda, right? That the uh, the Egla Rufa is disqualified. Um, if a yoke is placed upon it, whether the yoke is placed on it during the time of labor or whether it's not actually been worked with. Um, but shower voters, but other types of work in postlos elabashas about it, it does not disqualify it except if it is actually being worked. Uh, now the Gemara is going to raise a similar objection uh, to the one we raised before. The Ema, and let us say, uh, the the Pasuk's phrase, uh, which has not been worked with, is a general statement. All prat, the word all is a particular detail. And as we said before, klalu prat, the rule is, whenever the Pasuk states a general statement and then a detail, in the klal elamashavit prat, right, the general statement uh, is limited and only applies to the particular detail. So applying that to our Pasuk, asher le uvad it's disqualified, it, it needs to not have been worked with, uh, but then it says the word all. So that means that this halakha only applies to an all. All in a yoke, yes, is disqualified. Mediocre in a low, but any other type of work is not disqualified. And the Gemara is going to give the same answer we gave before. It's true that it is a valid way of interpreting the Pasuk, but the Pasuk has the word asher, like Ubudba. The word asher is an amplifying word. It indicates we should expand the scope, the scope of the generalized statement. Okay, so Amar Rabbi Abahu, Rabbi Abahu. So now we're kind of done with a lot of the heavy duty analysis, uh, right? We've figured out how we learn all the halachas, and you know, from Paraduma and Egla Rufa. Now, uh, Rabbi Abahu is going to raise a question, right? We've we've established that pulling an Egla Rufa with a yoke just qualifies it, but so Amar Rabbi Abahu. Rabbi Abahu says, "By me name Rabbi Yochanan. I once asked Rabbi Yochanan, Mashiach all become right. So the pulling of the yoke, right, which disqualifies an egla rufa. How much? How far must the egla rufa be pulled in order to disqualify it? So Amar, Amar Lee. So he said to me, Kamale all like the measure of a full yoke. So Abahu, a uh, question was raised." 
Um, what does this mean? The measure of a full yoke. Does this mean the measure of the length of the yoke or the or the width of the yoke? So So one of the sages, uh, one of the sages present of Rabbi Yaakov Shmei, and Rabbi Yaakov was his name. Uh, it was ex- this exact question was explained to me personally, like Rabbi Yochanan, by Rabbi Yochanan. Uh, so I know exactly what he meant <laughs> by uh, Kemalai all the width of a yoke, Mashikas all the Rachvai Tefach, right? The pulling of a yoke, the measure is according to its width, right? The width of a yoke, which is a Tefach, a hand breadth. So the Gemara asks, okay, this is a great story. We answered our question, but <laughs> Rabbi Yochanan just meant a tefah. Velema tefah. He should have just said tefah. Why did he use this confusing measurement of the width of a yoke? And we had to like figure out what, how much it was, right? So hakamas melan shiur the old tefah, right? So the Gemara says this actually is, is important. This teaches us that the width of a yoke is a tefah. <laughs> They're like, okay, but have a kamai lafamina. So, what's the halachic significance of that? Why on earth would we need to know how thick a yoke is? Like, who cares that the thickness of a yoke is a tapach? So, the Gemara answers, it's for the purposes of commercial transactions, right? If a person sells a yoke, uh, it must, you know, it's kind of like a, you know, a, um, this, the regulatory standards, right? For how much, if a person sells a yoke in the marketplace, that yoke must be at least a hand breadth wide. Otherwise, it's considered like a deceptive sale and the buyer can retract because he can say, hey, that's not a yoke. Yokes are at least a hand breadth. So this uh, statement of Rabbi Yochanan teaches us that sort of, sort of minimum measure, uh, you know, for market regulation purposes. <laughs> Okay, so now we've kind of emerged from this analysis of exactly what the particulars and the specifications of the heifer. Now we're going to talk a little bit about what's the meaning of this of this whole process. What's the meaning of taking this heifer to a stream and breaking its neck? What's going on? So Rabbi Yochanan is going to explain this to us. So Amr Rabbi Yochanan ben Shal, Rabbi Yochanan ben Shal says, heavy Why did the Torah say? Uh, bring this heifer to a stream. Right, so Hashem is saying to us through this mitzvah, let something that did not produce fruit, right, a heifer that is young and has not given birth, and have its neck broken in a place which does not produce fruit, right, because as we discussed before, the land where the heifer is brought to uh, cannot be a land which has been sown or worked in any way. And be Paris, and this should then atone for the death of a man who was not able to bear fruit. My Paris, what is the fruit that we were referring to? This man, the fruit that the man was unable to produce. So maybe you can say it means producing children. So that doesn't really make sense. So if that's true, then one might say that if it's an old person or someone who's sterile and capable of having children, Agla Rufa isn't done, right? So the Gemara says no. Um, so Hakinami to let we might say that we don't do, uh, we don't break the neck of the heifer. So 
the Gemara says, no, the, the Peros that Rabbi Yochanan ben Shal was referring to was mitzvahs, right? This person wasn't able to uh, perform, you know, more mitzvahs, uh, had his life um, not been cut so rudely short. Just, just a little bit about this. So, the, you know, the Roshanan talk about how, you know, again, the Gemara here is explaining sort of the symbol. It seems to be sort of, you know, describing it more as a symbolic act. But Roshanan actually explained that the purpose of doing this whole procedure was really so that to sort of inspire the public um, and sort of notify them, sort of make this a public show so everyone would be aware that this murder happened and people would be motivated to try to find the murderer um, so we can identify who he is and hold him accountable and also so that the the person who was murdered can be identified and then his wife no, will no longer be in Naguna. Um, his children will be able to inherit um, and all of that. So really this was sort of like a, a, a way of sort of sort of uh, announcing to the public and arousing them to try to um, help find the murderer. And actually the Beni Hayata says that's what the word egla actually sort of symbolizes. The word egla can be split up into the words ayin, right? That just the first letter is ayin, which ayin also means an I. And then this, the last three letters spells gila to, to reveal, right? So he says that really the purpose of the Agla Rufa is for the person, you know, the eyewitness, the person who saw this murder take place to reveal and expose, um, you know, the facts of, of this case. Um, mm. and, and then the Maharal actually explains, you know, the whole, this idea of the fruit, right? That, that you know, just like the ground has this potential, this like, you know, unburied potential to be able to produce all kinds of fruit. Um, and if it doesn't produce fruit, then it's sort of not tapping into its potential. So similarly, this person, um, the, you know, the, the person, the victim who has been murdered um, is not able to fulfill, you know, actualize their full potential through mitzvahs. Um, and the obvious question here that some of the Aharonim ask is, well, you know, it's not really a fair, fair comparison, right? Because the person, we assume, already did mitzvahs in the past, right? As opposed to this land, which never bore fruit at all. Um, so it actually says this really beautiful idea, which is that with mitzvahs, um, each mitzvah has its own unique, infinite um, power. And it's totally disconnected to any other mitzvahs a person did, right? It's not like, you know, you get into a certain habit or to a certain routine, and that's, that becomes the value of your mitzvah. Each mitzvah sort of has a value in and of itself that's totally independent of anything else that was done in the past. And that's why we can make this comparison and say, this person whose life was cut short, you know, could never actualize their potential uh, with regard to those mitzvahs that he's going to do in the future, which have their own totally independent um, value. Mm, wow, that's really beautiful. Um, yeah. I feel like it's such a yeah, it's such a welcome uh, kind of interlude, <laughs> right, to this halachic uh, analysis um, yeah. and kind of giving the you know the the underlying meaning to it all. Um, so the Mishnah continued uh, and had t- said, uh, "When we read an Isa el Nachal Eisan, the elders should take the Egla to a strong stream." And the Mishnah had actually done the work of translating the word Eisan for us. Eisan kemashmai kasha Eisan is, as the word indicates, a very strong, a strong flowing stream. Tanurabana and our sages have taught minayin Eisan jehu kasha. So how do we know that the word Eisan means strong? So Shinavar, we have another pasuk. Uh, which shows us, based on context, that that's what it means. Eisan, Meshavacha, Vesim, Vasela, Kanacha. Eisan is your dwelling place, and your nest is in the rock, right? So you see Eisan is associated with something strong and firm like a rock. Another plastic for Micha, Shimu Harim, it's Riva, Eisani, Meisne Arts, right? Um, the, here, oh, mountains, the, 
the controversy of Hashem and the Isanim, the foundations of the earth, right? Isanim here is referring to mountains, right? Also something very strong and firm. Others say, right? So others say that the word Isan is not, doesn't mean strong, it means old, right? And how do we know that the word Isan means old? Shanamar Gai Isan who? Gai Me'ilam who, right? It's an ancient nation, a nation from old. Okay, so uh, next thing the Mishnah told us was the Arfan Isa Bekaifitz Me'ahara. They would break the neck of the Egla uh, with a cleaver from behind. My Taima, what's the reason? How did they know this, right? That that's what needs to be done. So Gamar Arifa Arifa, they uh, derive it from the word Arifa, right? The word Arifa is used in another context as well, with regard to the bird that's brought as a chata, as a sin offering. Uh, and the bird, uh, Baikra clearly describes how the bird brought as a chata must be broken, its neck must be broken from the back. Okay, the next thing the Mishnah told us was Umakaima Aster Milizraya Miliavid. It was prohibited for that ground to be sown or worked. Tadarabanan, our seed is of Tad, Asher La Yaavad by Vela Yizra, the Sha'avad. So Rabbi Yashia interprets the words in the Pasuk uh, as in the past tense, right? Uh, that the the land must be a land which has never been worked or sown in the past. That's Rabbi Yashia's opinion. Rabbi Yannison, Aymar Lahaba. Rabbi Yannison says, no, you could actually read the words for the future, uh, that it must be land which will not be sown and will not be worked in the future. Rabbi Amar Rama comments on this debate and says, um, Everyone agrees that the land cannot be sown in the future. Um, right, that from this point on, from the point where the Egla Rufa was, uh, was done there and on, the land cannot be sown. Because the Pazak said, right, this land shall not be sown. But Rabbi Yeshia and Ariana are arguing about the past, right? Does this earth need to be virgin earth, earth that's never been worked ever? Uh, or is it enough that it will, you know, from now on not be worked? Uh, so Rabbi Yeshia believes, Rabbi Yeshia says, um, Rabbi Yeshia says, does it state and it shall not be worked in the future? No, it says la um, yavad, which could be read as a past tense. Um, Rabbi Yedison, and Rabbi believes meek siv ashar Does it say it in the past tense, like a land that has not been worked? It says it ashar yavad, right? The word yavad can, is kind of ambiguous. It could be uh, really read in both tenses. Uh, so Rabiashia Asher Lishabar Masha Rabiashia says the word Asher Asher Layavad indicates the past tense. Um, Rabiashia Asher Ribuyahu Rabiashia says no. Uh, the word Asher is actually an amplifying term. Uh, the word Asher is there to teach us another halacha, which we'll learn later. Uh, and the word is, so therefore we kind of have to ignore the word Asher and therefore just read the pasuk as the future tense. Okay, next thing, the, the final thing taught in the Mishnah is that although this land uh, sh- should not be worked in the future, it is, you are allowed to comb flax there or cut stones there, right? So that type of work is allowed to be done as long as it's not working the land itself, like plowing or sowing there. So how do we know this? Uh, so... 
Tanarabanan, our sages have taught, Asher la yavad la yizra. says, which may neither be worked nor sown. In Li'el right? So that pasuk seems to indicate that you cannot sow the land. How do we know? How do we know that other types of labor are prohibited? So Talmud Lamar, Asher la yavad We call makay. So it doesn't just say la yizra, it also adds the words asher la yevad right, which cannot be worked, which indicates any type of work. Imkain, if so, ma tamad lemar vila yizra. Why does the Pustic say vila yizra, right? It could have just said asher la yevad. It shall not be worked. And then it would have indicated all types of work. Why does it uh, add the seemingly redundant words vila yizra? So Lymer teaches you just as sewing is unique because it involves the land itself. That means that so too the types of labors are prohibited or that are prohibited are those that are with the land itself. To exclude uh, combing flax and cutting stones, they're not working with the land itself as plowing or sowing uh, seeds are. The Ema Asher Layavad by Klaus. So you might say, hmm, Asher Layavad is a general principle, right? It shall not be sown as a general principle. Vila Yizra is a prat. It shall not be sown is a prat. And as we talked about before, uh, there's a rule, Klaus Uprat, when the Torah says a general statement and then a detail, in the Klaus El Mashabet Prat, you. Uh, the generalized statement is only applied to that specific principle, uh, which would indicate zria in sewing is permitted media but other types of work are not prohibited right so that's why the puzzle as the word asher which is an amplifying term uh, and indicates that we should not apply the rule of Prat and say and instead uh interpret asher more expansively and say all types of work are prohibited so next in the Mishnah, uh, the Mishnah relates, the elders of the city would wash their hands. Um, cool. No, Tanarabana, and our sages have taught, Right, so this is a quote from the Pasuk in Devarim. It says, all the elders of the city who are nearest to the slain man should wash their hands over the Egla, the heifer who had his neck, its neck broken in the valley. Uh, now, what might have thought that, like, what's the point of saying Egla Ha'arufa, the Egla that had its neck broken, right? Uh, you know, what other Egla are we talking about, right? So, Ha'arufa. So, what is the purpose of the Pusik saying Ha'arufa? Almakim Arifta Shel Egla. It's to teach us they have to wash their hands over the place where the heifer's neck is broken. Okay, so the Pasuk continues. Our hands did not spill this blood, uh, and our eyes have not seen. Uh, and the Brisa now comments in a similar way that our, that our Mishnah did. And asks the question, did, it, did we think, did it enter our minds that these elders are murderers? Rather, they're saying and declaring that this man had not, did not come to us and we did not let him go without food, uh, without food. We did not see him and let, and let him be and abandon him without accompaniment. 
Tanya, hi, Rabbi Mayer, Imer. Uh, it is taught in Abraisa that Rabbi Mayer would say, we coerce people, we force, it is an absolute requirement to accompany a guest on his way. Uh, the reward for accompanying a guest has no measure. Shanamar, as it says, uh, right, so this is uh, when Yoshua is, when Jewish people are trying to conquer the city of uh, Beiskel, uh, and the Jews are forming a siege around the city, and they see one inhabitant of the city leaving, uh, and they say, they tell him here, you know, please show us, show us the entrance to the city, and we'll do kindness with you. And it says, uh, this man complies. But Yerimus, this, you know, local native of the city, shows them the entrance of the city. Umacha said, and how did they reward him? Uh, the, Jew, the Jews, when conquering the city, you know, uh, killed all the inhabitants by the sword. But they let this man and his family go as a reward for um, helping them. Uh, and it further says, the, the Navi continues and tells us, this man uh, who saved the day, right? He went to the land of Chitim. He built a city, and he called the name of the city Luz. That is the name to this day. Uh, and the Brisa tells us some really amazing uh, information. Uh, about the city of Luz. Tanya, uh, we learned that Abraisa, he Luz, this city of Luz is the very city where Techeles will is died. He Luz, this is the same city where Sancheriv, right? Sancheriv famously when he conquered, you know, his massive empire, which included the entire, you know, much of the Middle East. He, um, part of his like kind of like political strategy was to take people from different cities and remove them from their cities and resettle them in different areas so that no one would feel too settled or too comfortable where they were. They'd be out of their native land. Everyone would be out of their native country. And therefore that would give him most control. So, so Herod would resettled most of, uh, you know, that was his sort of classic uh, tactic whenever he would conquer a new country. But Luz was a special city, was protected, had a special divine protection. Uh, and Sancheriv, although he conquered the city of Luz, did not exile its inhabitants. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, right later on, he conquered, you know, to conquer his empire, but he did not destroy it. But even the angel of death has no dominion over it. Uh, but the elders of the city, uh, when they sort of get feel that it is their time, they're ready to go. They're kind of done with with the world. They leave, they exit the walls of the city, and they die by choice. You know, when they decide uh, it's time for them to end their lives. But light and it is not. It is. Is it not a kalvachimer? Umak nani zash light deeper bepiv v'lehalafaraglav garam hatzalalayulazarei atzev kolatares. Just as this knani, uh, who he didn't even he didn't say anything with his mouth or didn't walk with his feet. All he did was point. You know, gesture you know, in some way, and gestured to the Jewish army, you know, where the entrance of the city was. With that one gesture, he caused, um, he caused himself to be rescued and also caused merit for his descendants forever, 
right? To all the generations. Um, Misha Isa Levaya Baraglev, one who actually uses his feet to accompany uh, a guest, how much more so will he be rewarded generously? So as an aside, the Gemara asks, oh, how indeed did this man gesture to the Jewish army? Right? The Pasuk doesn't really say how exactly this man showed the Jews where the entrance was. Uh, so Chizkiah, Amar Chizkiah said, he just twisted his mouth for them, right? Uh, Rabbi Yochanan said that he sort of pointed with his finger. He showed them. Uh, there's a brisa which teaches in accordance with Rav Yochanan. Uh, right, that that the gesture was actually, that the way he showed that was actually pointing with his finger. Uh, so the brisa says, V'shvil shaknani Right, the brisa uses the words, because this knani pointed with his finger, he caused salvation for him and his descendants until the end of all generations. Okay, so we're going to learn some more about the benefit uh, uh, and the um, the greatness of accompanying a guest or a, or a friend um, outside the city. So our Rishuah Ben Levi, Rishuah Ben Levi said, Hamatalik Baderef, the Englai Leviah, someone who walks along the way without accompaniment. Yasik Bater, he should engage in Torah study, Shinamar, Hilivias Plain Haim Lurishaka, Vanakim Lagagrasaka. Right? Uh, it says about the Torah that it shall be like a, a wreath of grace around your head and a chain around your neck, like a decorative chain around your neck. Bamar Yeshua ben Levi, or Yeshua ben Levi said, Bishvil Arbab Siet Shaleva Parla Avraham, because of the four steps. That Pari accompanied Avraham Shinemar, as it says, Vietsav Alapariya Nashin, where it says that um, after right the story, whole <laughs> story with Avraham and Sarah, and you know, they're they're kind of the mishaps <laughs> that ensued after their stay in Egypt, right? Paro tries to um rec- like reconcile and appease Avraham for the, you know, taking his wife. Uh, and so he says Avraham gave him men. Uh, who accompanied him on his way. Um, so because of that, you know, the merit of those four steps, he accompanied him. Right, He was able, he enslaved his descendants for 400 years, meaning he could that merit sort of enabled him to have power, you know, that power to enslave his descendants for 400 years. Right, it says that Avram is told that um, his descendants will, will serve and be afflicted by the Egyptians for 400 years. Just a note here, I mean, of course, of course, uh, you know, the fact that the Jewish people were going to be enslaved was already decreed beforehand. Um, but the idea here is more the fact that it was specifically to Mitzrayim um, was because of what Pari did. Um, and if, had he not done that, it could be, you know, that promise would have been fulfilled or that prophecy would have been fulfilled, you know, through some other nation instead. Hmm. Right, so that's what gave him the power to step in those shoes. <laughs> yeah. Um, right, I translated it as the Egyptians, but really the Pusik just says a strange nation, where they'll serve that strange nation, and that strange nation will afflict them for 400 years. Right. Um, okay, so Amar said, Anyone who um, escorts his friend for four Amos in the city will not be harmed. Right, and the like, Mara kind of tells us a uh, 
you know, evidence <laughs> provides evidence that this works. Rabina Ilvila Rava Baryitzlik, Dalit Amos Bayer, Rabina accompanied Rava Baryitzlik for Amos in the city. Matali de Hezeka, and he, you know, came very close to a certain danger, Vitatzel, and he was saved, right? So we're not sure exactly, right? This isn't, the Gemara doesn't fill in the gas about what this was, but apparently, right, it was Rabina's um, act of Levaya which helped him. Tenor and our sages have taught, right? Harav Talmud al Iburashir. It is proper for a teacher to accompany a student until the outskirts of the city. Chaver lechaver ad Tchum Shabbos, a friend to a friend, till the Tchum Shabbos. That's two thousand almost, right around three thousand feet outside the city. Talmud Larav in Loshir, a student to a teacher. There is no measure. Okay, that's the end of the bride set, but the Gemara says, <laughs> despite the fact it says there is no measure, <laughs> the Gemara says, Bikama, and how much is that? Like, come on, you know, <laughs> how much really should it be? So Amara Shashis, Rav Shashis says, Ad Parsa, until a Parsa, which is four mil, it's around 2.4 miles. Belay Amran El Araba, Sheena Mubak, and this measure of a Parsa is. A, is is just about a regular teacher who isn't necessarily his most significant teacher. Of a rabbi Mubak, his like most significant like teacher and mentor, Shleisha Parsas. That teacher needs three times as much, three parsas. Uh, well, here another. It's a long time. It's a long well, time. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's commitment. <laughs> um, so we're gonna hear a story right about that happened. Uh, I know. While two sages were fulfilling these, this you know requirement of Leviah. So Rav Kahanalvi the Rav Simi Rashi Mipum Nahara Ad Beit Tanita de Babel. So it says Rav Kahana accompanied Rav Shimi Rashi from Pum Nahara to a palm grove in Babel, right? Which is you know quite quite a significant distance. Kimatu has them when they got there. Amrle he said to him. Uh, so Rav Kahana said to Rav Shmuel Barashi, "Vadai hami tanisa de Babel adam You know, is it true? I guess <laughs> for some reason, you know, after their long walk, he had like one last question to ask him. So he said, "Is it true that you say these palm trees in Babylonia have been here since the days of Adam?" Right? It seems like quite a fantastic claim. So Amrlei Rav Shmuel Barashi said to him, "Amkar and Milsa de Amr Biyosi Barchanina, you've reminded me." Of something that Rabbi Yosi used to say, my said, "What's the meaning of the pasuk? Right through a man that no man has passed through, where no Adam has dwelt." Right, so this seems like a kind of redundant phrase, right? Right, if it already says no man passed through, then how could a man dwell there, <laughs> right? Once it says, "Oh, no one." Well, there, why does it say no one passed through? Right. So this Pasuk obviously has a therefore, you know, we therefore give this Pasuk kind of a non-literal meaning. And it says, Adam Harishan, right? Any land for, but upon which Adam Harishan decreed uh that it be settled, Nisyashva, it would settle. Eret Adam Harishan, But a land concerning which Adam did not uh, decree was not settled. Right. So Therefore, the Pasuk would be explained, but Eretz Asher Lai Avar Ba'ish, any land where no man passes through, Adam Sham, right? That's a land where Adam decreed, Adam Arishan decreed it would not be settled. 
Um, right. And so according to this, you would say this, this place, you know, where there are palm trees, maybe we don't really mean that the palm trees were literally there since Adam Harishon's time, but it was a place which for which Adam Harishon decreed that would be settled, you know, would be filled with palm trees, but not inhabited by men. Rav Mordechai, Ila Veiler of Ashi, Mehagronia, Ba'ad Bey Kipi. Uh, so Rav Mordechai would accompany Rashi from Hagronia to Bey Kipi. Ba'amrile Ad Beidura. Some say it was until Beidura. Um, Rav Yochanan would show him a Rav Yochanan would say, uh, in the name of Remeyer, Kol She'ena Malava Umislava Ki'ilu Shefiktan. Anyone who does, who does not accompany or doesn't allow himself to be accompanied is like he spilled blood. If only the men of Yericha would have escorted Elisha, um, he would not have incited the bears to attack the children. So this is a story in Malachim, Bays, where the waters of Yericha were very bitter, uh, and Elisha miraculously sweetened the water. So now that the people in Yericha were able to have uh, you know, proper drinking water. Uh, and it says that when he left, uh, there were a bunch of, there were men who were waiting outside the city uh, who were angry at him because why? The neighboring city, uh, men in that city made a living off of selling water to the people in Eureka because the water had been undrinkable. And now that Alicia had sweetened the water, these people were upset. And so they mocked Alicia. Uh, and because of this, you know, mocking a prophet is a dangerous business. Don't try this at home. As a result, it says Alicia looked at them uh, and there was bears that came out of the forest and attacked them. Right. So, uh, and so he says that if the, the Gemara is saying, if the Ben of Eureka would have sent people to accompany Alicia, right, they would have kind of been his bodyguards. They would have protected him. They would have shooed away those people who were trying to mock him. And then they would not have been attacked. So the Gemara is going to quote the Psukim uh, describing the story, Shunemar, as it says, right, says that uh, he went up from Beiskel, from there, from Yericha to Beiskel, uh, but he was just going on his way, and the Psukim says there were these young lads, Yatsum and Eir, who went out from the city, the neighboring city, and they mocked him. But Yamerland, they said to him, go up, bald head, go up, bald head, uh, and so the Pesach, the Gemara now is kind of going uh, to analyze this episode. And it says, I'm like, what exactly did they say to him? Why did they say, why were they calling him Baal? Right. Uh, so the Gemara says, krachas Go up because you've made this place bald, right? You've taken away our livelihood because we can no longer sell the people of Yerichai water. Mine Una Arim Katan, and why does it call them young lads? Right? It appears that they were actually men. They weren't really children. So why does it call them young lads? So Amar Belezer, Belezer says to Shimon Urimina Mitzvah, they were Naar because they were young. They were empty of mitzvahs. Katanim Shahayu Mana, they were minors, they were small because they had uh, they were of little faith. Right? They didn't have faith that Hashem would, you know, provide a new livelihood for them. Tana, we were Tana Bryson, Arim Hayu, Ubizvasu Aslan Kiktanim. They were really ready already lads, right? Lads means young men. Ubizvasu Aslan Kiktanim, but they uh, disgraced themselves like little children. 
Maskefla Rabiosef, so Rabiosef objects to this interpretation. He says, is this really what it means? Maybe the word Na'arim is just indicating the place that they were from. Miluk Siv Aram Yasu Gudujim Vayashu Me'eris Yisrael Na'arakatana. It says that uh, the Aramim uh, went out into bands, then they they took a captive uh, from the Jewish people, right? They fought against, there, there was a battle between Aram and the Jewish people, and they captured a young maiden. Now, this we have a similar problem here. The word Na'ara really means a full-grown, like a young woman, and Katana means like a little kid, a little girl, right? So which was it? Was it Na'ara or Katana? So Bakachila, Na'ara or Katana? Like, is it, was she a Na'ara or Katana? So Vamar or Padas, or Padas had said, Katana Demin Nu'uran, right? The word, she was really a Katana, a little girl, and the reason why it calls her a Na'ara is because she was from Nu'uran. Nu'uran is a place, so Na'ara isn't saying, indicating her age, it's just indicating where she's from. So perhaps you could use that same explanation here. Uh, Na'arim Kitanim could mean that they were actually really kids, and the word Na'arim is just saying where they're from. So the Gemara says, no, that that, that explanation doesn't work here. Hasam Lomafarish Makoma, uh, in the story with Aram, it doesn't actually explicitly say where this young girl's uh, place of origin was. But here it says it says exactly where they were. It says they were from Eureka. Um, okay, so moving right along, so it says, it says that uh, he turned around and he saw them and he cursed them in the name of Hashem. Ma'ra, so what is it that he saw? Amara, Rav said, Ra'amamish. He literally, he just looked at them, literally, he literally just looked at them, right? Just by looking at them, just by gazing at them, he was able to uh, harm them. Kedetani, or B'Shem Aimer, as we learned in a verse, B'Shem Megamil said, Kal makam shenastu kachamim uh, wherever the sages place their eyes, when a holy person looks, it can have a dangerous effect, a very, very powerful effect. Right, that can cause death or poverty. Right, so just the gaze of Elisha was, would be enough to hurt, hurt them. Shmuel, Amar Shmuel says the word by your aim, he gazed at them, has a, has a different connotation. Uh, Shmuel is a more spiritual site. Ra bahan iman um, he says, uh, Alicia saw that all of them had been conceived uh, by their mothers on Yom Kippur when um, marital intimacy is forbidden. And he saw that they had bluris, which was kind of the Gentile hairstyle of the time. It was kind of like the he- the size of the head would be shaved and the middle of the head, there'd be these long like braided locks around the middle of the head. And that was like a classic um, style, hairstyle of the idolatrous nations that was indica- indicative of kind of like their assimilation into the general culture. Um, so Blurius Rilehan came Marim, right? They had these Blurius, this like hairstyle like the Imorim. Uh, Yochanan said, He said they didn't even have like a smidge <laughs> of the mitzvah. Uh, the Dilma of Israel, perhaps you might say, oh, maybe their children would have done mitzvahs. Right? Maybe their children would have had mitzvahs. Amar Rabbi Eleazar, Eleazar said, he saw at that moment, that there would not be any, you know, saving grace, <laughs> uh, not in him, in them, not in their children, or any of their descendants through all the generations. Okay, so we'll pause. Pause here, and we'll pick up tomorrow with Daf Mem Science.